there's a couple of things I want to address about these verses that, I mean, and it worked out that the three things David said are three things I'm going to address to begin with. But I just want to be clear uh, because this wording doesn't necessarily fit in exactly. Uh, so before we begin, just a disclaimer, churches have abused uh, these verses. And I just want, as we t- talk to wives, as we talk to husbands, as we talk to children, as we talk to parents, understand uh, there is no room for abuse uh, in these verses, and I just want to make that clear because I know people have experienced that. And as a matter of fact, if anything else, we're going to find these verses uh, eliminate the ability for abuse. Um, but as we as we talk about these passages, as we talk about what the order of the Christian uh, home is, I think there's three very important reasons that we we talk about the order of the Christian home. I mean, and it's one of the reasons that uh, Agape is an expository church. We usually preach through books. We want to cover everything. We don't want to skip over anything. But um, the first reason is this. Uh, some of you guys are in families. Some of you have children. Some of you have spouses. Some of you uh, are still at home under a parent's authority. And in light of Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We want to know what a godly home, what a godly family looks like when we're trying to please the Lord. And so, you know, if I'm as a father, as a husband, I should want to please the Lord as a father and a husband. If you are a wife, uh, you want to please the Lord as, as, as a wife. If you are a child, you want to please the Lord as a child. If you are a parent, you want to please the Lord. Um, the second reason it's important to do this verse is, as David pointed out, there are some of you who might want to think this doesn't apply to me because you know maybe you're an adult, you're an adult who has moved out of the home, and so you no longer uh, are living under the authority of a parent, or maybe you don't have a spouse or you don't have children. Uh, and so the typical generic church answer is one day you might be married or one day you might be children, so you want to be prepared. But I think uh, that, is, that is true. But if you are sitting here unmarried looking at these verses, I think there is another reason this is still uh, important is because you may be called to a life of singleness or, or maybe even just a, a time of singleness. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7, 6 through 9, Uh, that singleness is a gift from God. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. And in context, it is him as an unmarried man. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And then he continues, uh, and this would be a few verses from... Uh, still in chapter 7, but verses 25 through 35. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. I want you to be free from anxieties. 
The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about the worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And so just a couple of things we see in this. Uh, a married person is concerned about serving God, but also about pleasing their spouse. But singleness brings the freedom to serve God unencumbered, and the unmarried person can develop a deep relationship with God because they have fewer distractions. So if you were sitting here and you've been called to singleness, what we discussed today matters because it will help you weigh whether you're called to marriage. Paul said that I wish you were single as I am. But why? Because if we're honest... If Paul had been married, there's probably trips he shouldn't have taken, there's towns he shouldn't have gone in, and there's boats he shouldn't have gotten on because he would have been thinking of a wife and children. And I'm going to tread very lightly here, so we're going to move into a second of this is Kevin's, Kevin's opinion based on the Scriptures. So I'm treading very lightly, but I have heard the story of some of the legendary missionaries uh, that we often in church history celebrate. And there's one particular one that steps out, uh, sticks out to me. And it is a man who went on missions. Uh, and this was, you know, in the, like the 1900s when, you know, women and children were still basically kind of treated like property. Um, that, you know, they, they, they really didn't have good standing on their own in society. And so he went on the mission trip, leaving his uh, wife and his son to fend for themselves. Um, and they lived in abject poverty while he was on the mission field. Um, eventually his wife died while his child was still young. And instead of coming home to take care of his child, he had his child sent to an orphanage so that he could stay on the mission field. And again, I'm saying I'm treading very lightly by questioning this person's call uh, to the mission field, but it concerns me in light of what we're taught in Colossians that this man would abandon his wife and abandon his son um, to do missions. And so I would almost question, had, had he truly weighed these scriptures, maybe he should have decided, if I am truly called to do this thing, I am not called to have a wife and I'm not called to have a child. And, and, he, and he, should have, he should have made that decision. So I think it's important as we're sitting here uh, if you're an unmarried person, to ask the question, if you feel like God's calling things, are you going to be able to, to operate in the godly ordered home? The third reason I think it's very important for us to discuss the topic of what a godly ordered home looks like is this. Uh, and, and I don't mean to sound cliche when I say this, but the, the nuclear family, the, the husband, wife, Children, you know, the children under the tutelage and authority of their parents, you know, the wife uh, in submission to her husband, the husband leading the family. This is under attack by the world, and it has been as long as I've been alive. Uh, when I was at when I was at UAB, this was thirty years ago. When I was at UAB, and my daughter's probably laughing back there because she says I try to fit that into every sermon. When I was at UAB thirty years ago. I was in a, uh, 
literature class because my, my minor was English. Um, and we were reading a short story, and in the short story, a man cheated on his wife. And, and, and I will tell you, the wife was, you know, she was a very needy wife, and she was portrayed very poorly in the short story. But it blew my mind that when we discussed the story, out of 30 students in this lecture hall, I was the only one that thought it was wrong that the husband did not love his wife and that he cheated on her, that he did not love her despite her neediness. Um, I mean, it, it, and, and like I said, that was, that was 30 years ago, and I, I just remember being taken aback of that. But, but one of my guilty pleasures uh, now is I, there's two, I listen to lots of podcasts, but there's two particular podcasts I listen to, and both of them are really focused on pop culture and, um, and current events. And, you know, both of them are secular podcasts, but even these secular podcasts have been commenting lately about these trends on social media and the trends in the movies uh, where there just seems to be this effort to denigrate being married. There's this uh, effort to denigrate uh, being a parent, uh, you know, being an obedient child. Uh, you know, there's a, I don't know if y'all have seen it, but like there's this young lady, she's made the news because she's suing her parents for being born because she didn't give her consent to be born. Uh, there is a super, super viral video uh, on TikTok and Reels where it's, it's this trend where people will... Uh, show themselves without a wedding ring and then like they're happy and then they'll set a, a wedding ring on and they'll show this horrible stereotype of being married and they'll pull the ring off and they're happy again. And, and just this assault on marriage being a good thing, on being uh, a parent being a good thing, having children being a good thing, being in a loving uh, nuclear family is a horrible thing. So just like Paul was talking to the Colossians in light of a society where there were false teachers talking about Jesus, there were uh, there were um, social uh, constructs that were antithetical. I majored in English. Antithetical to uh, what the godly family looks like. But he was still teaching it's the same way now. As we look at this scripture, we are looking at it in a society that does not value marriage, a society that does not value. Uh, husbands and wives, it doesn't value children. And so I think it's very important for us to see what this scripture says. So with that out of the way, let's, let's just jump back in. Wives, submit to your husband as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. In context, this passage does not just clarify the Christian home in light of the pressures that the Colossians faced, but it comes on the heels of verse 7, uh, uh, well, actually even before verse 17, uh, Colossians 3.11, where Paul says, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. And Paul expounds on this in Galatians 3, 28, where he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. So the question is this, if we're all one in Christ, 
is there still an order to the home? Is there, does, does Christ still have an order to the godly home? And we're going to find that he does. But in addition to that context, we have the context of the verse that David was nice enough to add uh, to our passage, and that's Colossians 3.17 that immediately precedes this teaching, where Paul says, I mean, yeah, Paul says, and whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So not only are we going to answer the question is, is there an order to the godly family? We're also going to answer the question, what does it look like to do whatever you do in the name of the Lord when it comes to our roles in the family? And and let me be clear, the context of this teaching is the Christian family. What we're going to talk about is going to be hard for the wife, it's going to be hard for the husband, it's going to be hard for the child, and it's going to be hard for the parent. And the expectation is that we're doing this in the bounds of Christian marriage and Christian family and a Christian walk where our hope is to please the Lord and that we're going to be guided by His Word, transformed by the Gospel, and led by His Spirit. So this is a doozy of a passage, and like David said, it has been uh, abused. And we're going to... I'm going to ask you to set that aside and just listen to what the Word says. So... In these first, in these four verses, I want us to see that Paul doesn't just give instruction, but he gives uh, what I'm going to call caveats, and he what he what he gives as protections for what he's called. Because Paul could have easily said this: wives submit, husbands love, children obey, father or parents don't provoke. And truth be told, in the society that uh, Paul was in, in the, in the way the, the Jewish culture was, the way the Roman world was, the way that um, the way all of the teachers of the time taught, probably if Paul had wanted to follow the, 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 the way of the world and not the way of Jesus, he would have just said, husbands, lead your, lead your wives and children. Uh, he wouldn't even have addressed the wives and children. He would have just told... The husbands make it happen. Now, Paul doesn't say as much here in Colossians as he does in Ephesians. If y'all have read Ephesians, he's going to say here in four verses what he takes a chapter and a half to say in Ephesians. But uh, I think we have a life truth uh, that I want you to keep in mind as we explore these four verses. And here's the life truth for Colossians 3.18. Through 21, the instruction to Christian wives and children are not given in isolation. He doesn't just throw out wives submit, husbands love, children obey, fathers do not provoke. The instructions are not given in isolation, but there are mutual obligations between the Christian husband and the Christian wife and the Christian child and the Christian parent. There are mutual obligations. So we're going to look at these verses in two pairs. We're going to look at 18 and 19 together, and we're going to look at 20 and 21 together. And so let's look at verses 18 and 19 and how when they are read together, this mutual obligation gives protection from taking advantage, manipulation, or abuse. 
So verse 18, wives, submit to your husband as is fitting to the Lord. Friends, there's a lot going on in these six or seven words. There's a lot not going on in these six and seven words. So let's look at what's not going on. Husbands, this verse is for your wife and not you. So husbands, this is not your life verse. Okay? She is called to submit. You are not called to see that she does. If you are having to quote this verse to your wife, I would challenge you to focus on 19 instead. And we'll get there in just a minute. Wives, this verse is for you and your husband. Not not for all women, to all men, not to all wives, to all husbands. A lot of issues we've had with the teaching of Colossians and the teaching of Ephesians is there are churches who, uh, on one hand, have taken the Scripture out of context and used it as a way to value men over women, or there are churches that have hold, totally avoided it uh, because they didn't, you know, they know, like, you know, submit just sucks the air out of the room, and they, you know, they don't want that pressure, and so there's been churches that have ignored the teaching, and then there's churches kind of, I guess, in the middle that, uh, as we've mentioned uh, other times when we've taught on hard verses, there are churches who feel like they've got to be God's PR person, and rather than let the Scripture say what it says, they feel like they need to tone down what it says. So let's start with this word submit. We might cringe when we hear the word submit. Uh, And I think part of the reason is because society tells us it's a bad word. And probably the reason they do it and the reason that a lot of Christians struggle with it is because when we hear the word submit, we don't think of the biblical definition of submit. We picture this instead. We picture submission as uh, a tyrannical governor uh, or a tyrannical government lording over us. Uh, we we envision an abusive spouse, a wife who nags her husband into submission, or a husband who controls and bullies his wife into submission. Or we think of the mixed martial art move where you put somebody in a submission hold until they tap out and give up. But submission is not being uh, being bullied. Submission is not uh, giving up. Although we're going to find submission takes giving up one's pride. But the focus here is not the husband lording over or ruling his wife. The call is to the wife to submit. And the word, and this in itself is revolutionary because, like I said, in the time Paul was teaching, the teachers often would not even speak directly to the women. They would speak to the men, and the men would, would be expected to, to take it out. But Paul is already showing the value of the woman by going, Here's the instruction I'm giving you. And we're going to see the same thing in a minute when he addresses children, because at this time, women and children were basically property. A man, a Jewish man could divorce his wife for any reason. A Jewish woman could not divorce her husband for any reason. So I'm going to give you a piece of advice. If you own an iPhone, download the app Accordance. Uh, It is a fantastic app. And the thing I love about it is it has the ESV. Um, and if you hard press on any word as you're reading, it takes you to the Greek word and gives you the Greek word. It gives you the definitions and tells you everywhere the word is used. And if 
you hard press on the uh, the Greek word here for submit. It is not the same word that is translated obey uh, later in verse 20, even though I think a lot of times you know people act like submission and obedience are the same thing. But but wives are not called to obey their husbands, they are called to submit. So what's the difference? Well, we obey because we are under someone's authority. A child is under a parent, a student is under a teacher, a citizen is under the government, and so they obey. There's an established authority that by definition should be obeyed. But this word, submit, it is hypotasso, assuming that's the correct way to pronounce it, but phonetically it's hypotasso. And this is a military term. And what this military term means, it indicates the placing of oneself under another willingly or voluntarily, not from a position of weakness or lesser value, but for order. It literally means to place or arrange under, to bring oneself under the influence or leadership. So when Paul tells the wife to submit to the husband, he's not saying you are a lesser to submit to a greater. He is saying here is the, the order that has been established, and I want you to willingly place yourself in here. It's a humbling situation. The, the wife submitting to the husband is not a sign of weakness or inferiority. It has nothing to do with value. For example, if a wife is better with finances, she is better with finances whether she submits to her husband or not. And if the wife submits to the husband, she should probably still be the one doing balance in the checkbook because she's better at it. Submission has nothing to do with value. And I want to share with you a couple of practical and spiritual uh, equivalents of this idea. For example, uh, the way agape works with elders. Currently, there are three elders. Um, the three elders are all equally elder. They are equally qualified to be elder. They have equally have the authority of elder. But there is a first among equals, which is the lead elder, or the pastor, which in this case is David. You know, so while Sam and I are equal with David, we also submit to the fact that he is the lead elder. We are no less elder than he is. He is no more elder than we are. But we submit to the order of things. You know, five years ago or six years ago, I've lost count. David was not the lead elder, but David was still an elder, and he was a lead elder. He was an elder under the lead elder of Chase. David is now look David has grown in maturity over 5 or 6 years but David is no no more an elder now than he was 6 years ago 6 years ago he was no less of an elder than he is now because he was under a different lead elder but spiritually I want us to look at the way Jesus models this for us in the Godhead 1 Corinthians 11:3 says this but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Philippians goes on to expand on it a little more. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself out by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then one more thing here, Luke twenty-two forty-one. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw away, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so we see, you know, Jesus is equally God as God the Father is, but he submits to the will of God and says, this is what I want, but not my will, your will be done. So submission is not about devaluing things, but but it is definitely a humbling act. And so now that we've defined what submission is, let's talk for a minute about the conditions. I talked about caveats and conditions. Let's talk about the caveats and conditions around a wife submitting to her own husband. Wives, submit to your husbands. And what does it say? As is fitting to the Lord. As fitting to the Lord is that callback to verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The wife is to submit as is fitting or pleasing to the Lord. So first of all, that is her motivation. Her motivation is not pleasing her husband. Her motivation is not satisfying what the pastor or preacher said. Her motivation is not fitting into her church or denomination's structure of things. She is pleasing her Heavenly Father, and that's it. That is, that is the wife's motivation and submission. But not only does as fitting to the Lord give her her motivation, it gives her her limitations as well. As fitting to the Lord is not the only reason, is not only the reason to submit, but is the reminder that the wife's submission to her husband comes second to her obedience to the Lord. So for example, if a wife is asked or ordered or compelled or led into a sinful situation, submission is not going along with the sin. And I hope I didn't confusingly say the way I said it. Don't you submission does not include going along with sinning. So if a husband says to his wife, You cannot go to church. If a husband says to his wife, you cannot read your Bible. If a husband says to his wife, you cannot worship God. If a husband says to his wife, we're going to cheat on our taxes. None of those would be required as submitting because it's not in a manner fitting to the Lord. This is a situation where obedience to the father is more important than submission to the husband. And we, we see examples of this in, in, in Daniel, when he was sent to the lion's den because he prayed despite the king's edict. Or we see it when Peter and the other apostles preach Jesus, even though the leaders tell them not to. And we see the response of Peter in Acts 5.29, where he says, we must obey God rather than men. But, but here's the important thing, because we've got to be careful. We're not careful. This becomes license and loophole rather than obedience to God. When, when Daniel prayed anyway. He was praying in obedience to God, not rebellion to the king. When Peter and the apostles preached, even though they were told not to, they did it in obedience to the Lord, 
not in rebellion to their authority. And by the same token, you know, if a, if a wife finds herself in the situation, she will not submit in obedience to God, not in rebellion to her husband. So I want to summarize with this life truth for the Christian wife. Christ is your motivation and he is your example. You know, submission is a very humbling thing. Jesus modeled humility in submitting to the will of the Father. But, you know, more than just the caveat of his fitting to the Lord, like I said, these these passages uh, are done in pairs. The, the Christian wife is given the protection that the Christian husband is called to love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is why Christian marriage is, is so important because if you are a Christian and marry a non-Christian, you know, you're, you're not, you're not afforded the protection. Your, your, your husband, your wife is not called to these things. But if a Christian wife is submitting to her Christian husband, she has the protection that her husband is told to love his wife and not be harsh with her. Men, you cannot lead your wife. I'm sorry, you cannot lord over your wife and be loving at the same time. You cannot be a bully and not be harsh. You cannot be controlling and not be harsh. We are called to lovingly lead. And Paul really expounds on what love looks like in general for a Christian in Corinthians, and specifically for the Christian husband in Ephesians. So let's first look at Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And I would tell us each one of us in this room, I would suggest we pray 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 over ourselves. Because sometimes loving is not easy. But we want to love the way God wants us to love. But not only do we have this general call to love, but in Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 33, the husbands are given specific ways to love their wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's big. I want to read that again. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his family, I mean, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You cannot love your wife this way and bully her into submission. And and listen to this verse 33. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. See, there's another example of how verse 18 and 19 are in this mutual obligation. See that you love your wife and that she respects her husband. There's this love and respect cycle. I don't know if y'all have ever kind of heard the love and respect cycle, but it's basically this. You know, the wife is to respect her husband. The husband is to love his wife. And when something goes awry, you end up in the scenario where either the wife says, I will respect my husband when he loves me. Or the husband says, I will love my wife when she respects me. And nobody wants to be first. And it's just this vicious cycle of, I got disrespected, so I'm going to withhold love. Love was withheld, so I'm not going to respect. And it just goes on and on and on until someone is ready to go first. And it's the same thing with love and submission. I'll, I'll submit to my husband when he loves me the right way. I'll love my wife when she submits to me. But... I want to say this to the husbands that it's it's great if either the wife or the husband breaks the cycle, but husbands were called to break that cycle. Because husbands, we are called to lovingly lead, and if we lead without love, we're a tyrant. But as a husband, we're called to love first. It Paul says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ Loved the church. He loved first. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't say when Kevin gets his stuff together, I'll love him. He didn't say, you know, when Kevin stops doing this or he starts doing that, I will love him. Jesus said, I will love Kevin while he's still garbage. And so, husband, if your wife is... Not respecting you, love her first. If your wife is not submitting, love her first. If your wife is nagging, love her first. If she is learning to trust your leadership, love her first. If she is struggling to respect you, love her first. So I'm going to summarize this section for the Christian husband this way. Love like Jesus, which includes loving first. Love first. And, and let me say one last thing uh, to you young men who are looking for a bride, considering marriage, or to you men who have already committed to it. It is a lucky man who marries who he loves. It is a godly man who loves who he marries. It is a godly man who loves who he marries. So similar to the relationship With the wife and the husband, we're going to visit the relationship between the child and the father or the parent. And uh, so let's start here in verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, 
for this pleases the Lord. And as I stated earlier, there's a different word uh, that is used for submit and obey, and the, the word here, uh, you know, when we look to the word submission, the wife and the husband are equals, where the woman chooses to submit to the husband. Uh, the word here, obey, indicates being under authority. Just like I said, it's, it's the authority of being under a teacher, the authority of being under a government. You're under the authority of a parent, and you are called to obey. But in the same way that the woman uh, is called to submit to please the Lord, we see the same thing here. Children, obey your parents and everything, for it pleases the Lord. So again, for the child, obedience to the Lord, or pleasing to the Lord is the the motivation for obedience. Uh, the world word "child" here. Uh, I want to clarify that because you know we have you know, we have some people that act like people are not children when they're you know twelve and they run the house. We have people who act like you know their child who's been married for fifteen years and lives in another state is still their child. Um, but I want us to look at the fact that. The, the reference to child here is children who are still under the roof of the parent. So if you have moved out and started your new life as an adult or you have your own family, this verse does not apply to you. You have your own verse, and that is Exodus twenty twelve: Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Um, this one follows you for your whole life. So I'm going to give you an example. When I've had the opportunity to uh, talk to people before they get married and give them a, a little bit of advice, one of the things that I share with them is know what you're going to do on Thanksgiving and family vacations. Because the first thing that happens when you get married is, uh, you know, her mama wants you to do what you've always done, and his and his mama wants y'all to do what you've always done. And so, I just want to walk through this example. You and your spouse make plans for Thanksgiving, and one of your moms calls and says, "We made plans for you and your family to come and do this thing with us." You honor your mother and father by thanking them for the invite and politely declining, or you can honor them by discussing with your spouse and y'all decide, hey, we can change our plans and you change your plans. But if you and your wife or you and your husband, whichever the case may be, uh, have solid plans, you are under no obligation to obey your parents. It's like, you've got to come to Thanksgiving. But on the other hand, oh, actually, I take it back. I got one more example. Or, because I've heard this one before too, you and your spouse feel called to the mission field and your parents are like, I don't want you to go to the mission field. You might get hurt, or that's not a good way to, you know, you, you went to college to be an economist, or you know, you're not going to make money or whatever, but they're like, we don't want you to go. Again, you are not obligated. You're obligated to honor your parents and consider that they're concerned, but you're by no means obligated as an adult in your own family to change your plans. But on the flip side of that, if you were 25, and I just picked that number out of my head. So if any of y'all are really 25, I'm not talking about you. But if you're, if you're 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, if, you're, if you are an adult, but you are living in your parents' house, and they are paying your bills, then this does apply to you. So if they tell you to turn your music down, turn your music down. But why, why 
why are parents, why are children called to obey their parents? I think there's, there's a couple of practical reasons. Well, children need to learn obedience because adults need to learn obedience, because human beings need to learn obedience. Children need to learn to be under authority because adults are under authority. And, it, and so the first practical reason is that it prepares, it prepares a child to be an adult. Adults are under authority, just like kids. We're called to obey governments. We're called to obey teachers. We're called to obey employers. But as we're going to see with the instruction given to the father slash parents in the next verse, children have the ability to learn obedience in the safety of parents who are called to encourage them and not provoke them. Adults do not have that same protection from secular governments and secular employers. And, and at the end of the day, children who do not learn obedience and do not learn to respect authority in the home will often become adults who are uncoachable, they're unhirable, and generally a menace to society. The second thing that obedience in a Christian home teaches us is that it teaches us to obey God. We learn... When we learn to obey loving parents, even when we don't understand, when, when we learn that we, we trust our parents, and even though we don't understand why we can't eat a gallon of ice cream at five years old in one sitting, we learn that our parents who love us, they know there's a reason that we can't eat a gallon of ice cream at five years old in one sitting because we'll end up throwing up more than likely, or if nothing else, I mean, the sugar will give us early-onset diabetes. But, but we learn through that loving relationship that we don't always have to understand. It's good to ask questions. Uh, you know, God's not scared of questions being asked, but we learn to obey even when the instructions we don't understand. And the same way as we grow into adults, we learn when we, as we're reading the Scriptures, we may not always understand the reason God calls us to do certain things, but... We, we learn that we can trust God even when we don't understand him. And, and what, we have, what we see is what, what Paul warns about, that people get to the point where they will not endure sound teaching, but they will seek teachers who tickle their ears. And by, by the same token, there will be uh, children who lament, but Billy's mom lets Billy do that. And that's when you go, but, but Billy's not your mom, or Billy's mom's not your mom. But, but I, I never really thought about this until the other day I saw someone talk about this, but that, that whole concept of enduring sound teaching. You know, we don't typically endure things that we enjoy. You know, I don't endure a good meal. I don't endure time with my spouse. I don't endure, you know, listening to my favorite podcast or my favorite music. I don't endure going on a hike. But... But we might endure a good workout. You know, we, we might endure a, a medical regimen that will help us to get healthy or a physical therapy regimen that will get our, our knees or our backs or whatever into place. By the same token, that's one thing that we learn is we learn to endure the sound teaching of loving parents. Or we will learn to endure the sound teaching of God. And so I'm going to summarize this section on children with this. Uh, the life truth for the Christian child is learning obedience to authority 
and the safety of the Christian home prepares you to grow into healthy adults and healthy Christians. And so much like the mutual obligation of the wife and the husband, we again see in verses 20 and 21 the mutual obligation of the parents and the children. Children are called to obey, but look at this command to the fathers and ultimately to both parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So children are to learn obedience from encouraging parents and the safety of a loving home. Children are safe with a father who fears the Lord. Children are safe in the refuge of parents who fear the Lord. Let's, let's again expound from Ephesians. Uh, we'll be over in Ephesians chapter 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do not provoke your children to anger. Colossians says don't discourage them. There was a... Um, there was... I, I saw, as I told you, I watched, I listened to these, uh, these current events slash pop culture podcasts. And recently there was a mommy blogger, had 2 million followers, but she ended up going to jail. And the majority of the evidence that was apparently used against her was things she was blogging about her family on YouTube. And they sent you to a couple of references, and there's one where like her son uh it likes some girl i mean he's probably like you know 12 or 13 you know still kind of awkward about the whole thing and the mom just keeps on camera to 2 million to 2 million views is just kind of teasing and and embarrassing her son about uh this um this girl that he likes and ultimately gets him to confess whatever girl he likes to 2 million followers before he's even told this girl that he likes her. And uh, now that's not what got her arrested. She did way worse than that. But the thing is, here she was, you know, her focus wasn't on loving her, even though, oh, never mind, let me say it. Her focus was not on loving her son. Her focus was on getting views and she discouraged and embarrassed her son. Um, another thing that is a disturbing trend on on social media is these parents who publicly discipline their children. You know, I'm all for somebody who's bullying kids or doing something uh, wrong. I'm, I'm all for them being punished in a way that they kind of learn the lesson. They learn not to bully. They learn not to say hateful things. They learn not to steal or whatever. I don't think it's a great idea to video the punishment you're doing on your child you know, on, on Instagram reels. But, and this is a situation where, you know, I think you are provoking a child to, to anger and discouragement. And so why do fathers, why do parents provoke their children? Well, one of the reasons uh, they provoke their children is they lack a healthy walk with Christ. Um, and that's true for any of these. If you or I are not in good relationship with Jesus, we're going to struggle to be Christian wives. We're going to struggle to be Christian husbands. We're going to be struggle to be Christian children. We're going to struggle to be Christian uh, parents. We're going to be, I mean, we'll just keep on. We're going to struggle to be Christian friends. We're going to struggle to be Christian employees. But, but one of the things we've got to make sure if we're going to raise our children 
without discouraging them, uh, without <clears throat> without uh, provoking them to anger, or even swinging the pendulum on the other side and not not disciplining them at all and letting them rule the house. Um, we need to make sure that our relationship with Christ is healthy. But I, I think the other reason we find fathers and parents provoke their children is they do not delight in their children. Uh, as I said, we live in a world that has waged war on the family, and to be honest, um, so much of, of what we see in the world swings to one side of the pendulum or not. You know, the children are the center of our universe, and all of our schedules are around their sports and their hobbies and their activities to the neglect of everything else. Or, you know, our children are burdens to be tolerated. And, you know, if I didn't have children, I'd have a nicer house or a nicer car or, you know, I would travel the world or whatever. Um, and so there is a pressure on people not to delight in their children. And Proverbs uh, 3, 11, 12 says this, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord and do not loathe his rebuke. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves as does a father, the son in whom he delights. And so even when we're disciplining our children, we should do it uh, because we love them and that we value them and that we want them to grow closer to Christ. Uh, I actually had a, a conversation um, with, you know, Samuel the other day and just telling him about how I had to learn the lesson. It was There were certain people it was hard for me to take rebuke from because I had to learn that they weren't rebuking me because they wanted to get me. It wasn't a gotcha. It wasn't a, a self-righteous thing. It was a They were rebuking me because they loved me and they wanted to see me grow in Christ. And so that's the way it should be with our children. Even when we have to rebuke our children, they should know we're doing it because we love them and we delight in them. And Proverbs 29, 17 says... Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. So we should delight in our children. Um, in a world that devalues them, we should value them. So let me summarize the life truth for the Christian father or the Christian parent. Be a firm leader who delights in your children. Be a firm leader who delights in her children.